like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Tatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood. Let's get radical about philosophy. I'm Sue Dodds and you're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio 855 on your AM dial. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. None of us can study anything properly unless we do it with all our whole being. Mary Midgley, wisdom, information and wonder. What is knowledge for? Mary Midgley was born on the 13th of September 1919 and she is an English moral philosopher. She was a senior lecturer in philosophy at Newcastle University and is known for her work on science, ethics and animal rights. She wrote her first book, Beast and Man, in 1987 when she was in her 50s. Subsequently, she has written over 15 other books. She has written about what philosophers can learn from nature, particularly from animals. A number of her books and articles have discussed philosophical ideas appearing in popular science, including those of Richard Dawkins. Now, we have a very, very fortunate to have a interview with Professor Mary Midgley now. Two of your early publications include Beast and Man and Animals and Why They Matter. What was it that inspired you to write about the connection between human and non-human animals? I can tell you, I read the book by Conrad Lorenz, which is called King Solomon's Men. That is, it is about the legend that King Solomon could understand the language of animals. And this was a quite good book, I think. It came out about 1950. Um, And we had a great understanding of jackdaws and geese and some sorts of other animals. And what he did was he conveyed to thought really strongly uh, that these were, uh, they liked people, and that people were very like these animals. Um, somehow, uh, both these books had been just, uh, kind of blocked before that uh, people think of animals as things. And um, now, uh, actually, we did have some animals living with us, dogs and cats and so on. But still, um, the legend was, the, the, the kind of official view was that these were quite different from people. Um, what Lawrence showed was that they weren't so different from people, and people weren't so different from them. And they found this extremely enlightening and chilling, um, because it puts us in the world as sort of members of the world, you know, not something quite separate. Um, it made us see as uh, 
kind of um, relations. So I got that idea strongly into my head at that time, um, and it made it much nicer for me looking around um, at the animals and at the people of the people that they were akin to each other. So I then I continued to think about this because um, there are all sorts of situations in which animals and people uh, clash and get across each other, and I thought that was very distressing. Could you tell us about your book, Beast and Man? Yes. Well, <laughs> yeah. Um, I got invited to go to Cornell University with Max Black um, by someone who read a, a little article that I wrote about all this. And Max Black, with great enthusiasm and, and helpfulness, um, I did a whole lot of people talk to me, uh, people with all sorts of different specialities, anthropologists, anthropologists, and um, social scientists, and also physicists, and so forth. So I spent a very busy week at Cornell, um, talking with all these different kinds of people about animals and their relation to people, after which the Cornell... The people who edited books in Cornell asked me to write a book. So I wrote a book um, about all this, um, which was Beast and Man. And it really didn't go down too badly. It was at a time when a very different thing was on the front of everybody's mind, which was sociobiology. Um, which was the uh, kind of line which Dawkins sold later on. Or the, um, yeah, um, selfish gene. Um, the idea of the selfish gene was that people only were essentially selfish, should they, or only wanted their own advantage. Now, this is not true, um, and it's a very tiresome clip, I think, um, but the way in which Lorenz showed me the way down this was by saying that animals are not, in fact, completely selfish either. That animals consider each other and are very interested in each other in a way very similar to the way in which people are. So um, it would be very odd if human motives were only selfish, seeing that we have come up Then we would have, if the 
and self-esteem have been completely right. Can't we make moral judgments? Now, could you explain a little about this? Oh, can we make moral judgments? Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. yes. Uh, a lot of people have the idea that we can't make moral judgments um, and they complain uh, that it's judgmental if somebody uh, judges somebody else. Now, I think this is a very odd uh, thing to think. Um, I started that book by explaining this little story, which was that one of my students uh, in a discussion um, said, but it's always wrong to make moral judgments, isn't it? Now, is that a moral judgment, you see, or isn't it? I think I find that extremely intriguing. Um, and, of course, what she was doing, she was thinking of moral judgments as always adverse judgments, like the judgment, uh, condemnation, so to speak. Um, but, of course, in order to think like that, uh, you have to think of the third other occasions when you judge somebody do you right or <laughs> you can't have a only one way. Um, I think the, uh, the interesting thing that's happened here is that people are, of course, very struck by how badly it works if somebody's condemning everybody else. Um, but, you know, condemning them, you have to think that you're right. Um, but, of course, if you're approving of somebody else, um, or indeed if you think you've done right yourself, um, this is just as much a moral judgment um, um, as a, a sort of skepticism here, which is actually quite unreal, um, that people are trying to get rid of a whole enormous Act of human life, which involves, among other things, thinking that some acts are right and some are wrong. And you're wondering what to do next, you see, and you think this would be right and that would be wrong. And you know, that's all judgment, and you need to do that in order to make your choice. So I kind uh, of followed that thought out. Uh, from the moment when the student said so very certainly, oh, but it's always wrong to make moral judgments, indeed. I've got it out ever since, and I read that little book, to that effect. Because I think it, 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 it's one of these very sweeping ideas that people tend to get, uh, which are too sweeping to work. We, uh, we want to object to something, so we're objecting to much more. Could you tell us about the Midgley Dawkins debate? Thank you. 
animals, that's something that they can't strike. And, but what I think was unfortunate was it came out at the time when um, American in America and Also written about the problem of evil in your book Wickedness. Yes, yes, yes. no, no, that is also quite interesting. Um, in the book Beast and Man, I had gone to town on how we and animals are much more friendly and positive than we are made out to be, you see. So this is a very positive book. But I thought I'd better put something in as well to explain that life is not all positive, but we don't do friendly things all the time. And I think a very interesting question, why do we sometimes, and animals too, behave so badly? So that's what that book's about. And, and of course, it's not a difficult question once you ask it to, to say, why did we behave so badly? Because we have motives which conflict, and when they conflict, one side or the other is going to turn out badly. And we have to choose between two different evils, which is not an uncommon situation. So, um, that's the point of that book, and I mean, what's known as the problem of evil, um, seems to be quite a genuine psychological problem. Uh, it can be, of course, if you ask it within a particular religious background, um, uh, there's an extra puzzle to me, why does God let us? But that's not the one I was writing about. I'm leaving that to those who are quite sure they where God is, so to speak. Um, but um, it, 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 it is, I think, still an interesting question. You know, when one hears it, people behaving as badly as they sometimes do. Uh, the question, how is this possible, is a reasonable question because it's all happening against the background. There are good, quite good and positive motives, really, are very important a great deal of the time. And if we were in, in, in a world where things are basically always bad, there wouldn't be a problem, but there is a problem. 
Yes, now you wrote about wisdom, information and wonder. What is knowledge for? Yes, well, um, again, this I think is a problem that arises quite reasonably all the more prepared because it's all business of learning expanded and always here, and everybody has to go to college now. Um, and it becomes a serious question why is knowledge so important? Well, I mean, I wish to say that it isn't actually knowledge, it's wisdom, it's merely understanding how. Another publication of yours is Myths We Live By, and you expose some modern myths. Yes. Yes, I mean by myths, of course, not lies, false truths, um, but um, imaginative visions. Um, and I think we very much need imaginative visions to be some sort of story about uh, our lives, about what sort of function they have in the world. And um, um, I mean, as the word myths from the Greeks who told all sorts of very good stories, uh, stories such that when you read the meeting, ah, yes, that explains, as it were. Um, and you see what tends to happen now is people move on from one myth to another. And the most Marxist myth uh, for some time was extremely popular and people like that. That's the story about the um, cash of classes. About the, uh, and, and the Because they 
Soviet Union was a mess before it ever got to be a Soviet Union. It was a despotism. It didn't have um, a proper civilized organization at all. So um, a, what happens a lot of it, um, stories of this kind, um, is that they do have a good bit of truth in them, but you can't put all your money on one of them. You can't expect it to tell you everything. And I think that's what happened about Marxism. But now instead of that, what we seem to have um, is to, to call them neoliberal myths, which is that if everybody is as selfish as possible, then everything will come out right in the end. Um, and of course, that's no more true than the Marxist story. Um, one of your most recent publications is Are You an Illusion? An Illusion? Are you an illusion? Yes. yes. Well, uh, because somebody who's quite an Called the philosophy of 
children, which takes the chopper to work with kids from about five onwards. And it isn't a matter of teaching the degree books about philosophy, it's a matter of teaching them to ask each other questions and, and listen to the answers. And you see, a part of the whole class of children are all thinking what the answers to questions are. They all give separate answers, and nobody says your answer is wrong. They all say you should find out the, the use of this particular way of thinking. And this, this you know, uh, makes kids better actually at doing ordinary work as well. So it's becoming quite popular around schools. Um, but the point of it isn't just that you change your marks up in other subjects. The point of it is that you learn to balance the different things that you have occasion to think, balance them, rather than throwing out one of them in order to make good for another. And I think this is an absolutely central point for philosophy, useful philosophy. Right, well, thank you very much for coming onto the program today. And I've been speaking to Professor Mary Midgley about her publications. And Mary actually has just celebrated, about a week ago, her 97th birthday. This is Joan Nessel speaking on and for Radical Philosophy at 3CR. I can remember speaking early when I first arrived uh, to Melbourne at a program called The Women's Shed, and that was my introduction to the wonders of community radio, which are more important in the world now than ever. And that's all we have time for today. So thanks very much to Professor Mary Midgley for her interview.